Human-Sized Science. I'm Anastasia Repullo, a third-year graduate student in Molecular and Cellular Biology at Harvard University. Today, I am joined by Anna Stoika, a graduate student in Computer Science at Columbia University. And together, we are going to interview Professor Venki Murthy, the Raymond Leo Erickson Life Sciences Professor of Molecular and Cellular Biology at Harvard University who will talk to us about our sense of smell. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Do you think you could give us a short description of what the science you're doing is? It's happy to. Um, so our lab uh, is a neuroscience lab, which means we study the brain and how it works, what it looks like, and what kind of a behavior it produces in the animal. The specific part of neuroscience that we are very interested in is the sense of smell. So this is olfaction, and perhaps it is not as uh, visible for humans in some sense as sight or sound, which we are very consciously aware of all the time, and we, you know, we, we see things, we hear things, that sort of seems to dominate our lives. But the sense of smell is uh, quite prevalent, and for many animals, it may be the primary sense. For example, rodents and dogs, uh, olfaction is a pretty, pretty important uh, sense. I can start with saying the larger reason for studying this is simply that the model animal that uh, many of us use in the lab, which are mice, they just have an extremely good sense of smell. So if you want to understand how that animal kind of behaves and what is important to it, it seems like it's good to study the thing that it cares about the most. So we, we, that, that's one motivation. And there are other motivations too, and it's intrinsically interesting. To some extent, it seems mysterious because we, know, you know, we just take in a sniff and we seem to conjure up all these things in our head based on what we, what we smell. So there is probably a little bit of the mystery of that, which is also exciting. I know there's a whole bunch of how do you study it? Like what, when you say sense of smell, what is it that you study? We study the behavior, like how mice take the smells and make sense of it. And then we train them to tell us what, what they're smelling. We also then look in their brains to see when mice are smelling, what parts of the brain are activated, how is the activity pattern in different parts of the brain coming together to give rise to the perception, like what, what you're perceiving which then of course directs the animal to act and, and, and do something. So we're interested in sort of all, all, all of these uh, things. Uh, is it something that is understudied, the sense of smell? Is it something that's been traditionally ignored and why and how come you're now paying this attention to it? Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, in, in science, it's always a bit tricky to say what is studied, what is understudied. And I think if you just look at the sheer number of people, number of labs and number of scientists, that are studying the various um, sensory systems. Yes, the sense of smell and also taste, which is very, very linked to each other. They, there's just not that many people studying it uh, in contrast to uh, hearing and, and vision are big, but also sort of somatosensory, like in a touch and you know, kind of the body feeling that also is reasonably well studied. Uh, the sense of smell and taste a little bit less compared to that, I would say. You know, I don't know if it's because people thought it was less important, although it could be. There is, you know, I think um, there are now books um, that sort of trace the history of uh, study of sense of smell. And, uh, you know, 
at least in some forms of Western philosophy, there was this idea that that's sort of a more primitive feeling for humans, the more sophisticated things are the other like vision or whatnot. So maybe there was a feeling of it's a kind of a low sense, if you will. I don't know if that's what's really made it uh, understudied. If I have to take a guess, I think there are probably two reasons why there aren't as many people studying until recently. One, I think it just doesn't feel important somehow, right? You're going about if you're blind, if you're deaf, it feels like you really would, would have a hard time. Whereas, yeah, if you don't smell very much, it doesn't really matter. I'm not sure I agree, but that's, I think, uh, kind of prevalent. So I think it's just a sense of importance, right? And the other related to that, so importance meaning that it feels like diseases or disorders of smell are not so life-changing that one ought to care about it. So you don't need to, it's like curing blindness or curing cancer. You know, that's like, seems very, very important. Uh, that's one thing. And then the second thing I suppose is that it's, it seems a little bit more intangible. Like what is it that you study? Because when you study vision, you say, okay, it's object recognition. I look at a visual scene. I need to pick out faces. I need to pick out trees. I need to pick out cars. There seems to be a very clear intuitive understanding of what is it about the sensory scene that you need to make sense of. And that also, I think, translates into, um, in computer science, computer vision is probably one of the most sophisticated, most advanced artificial thing, right? I mean, you can, I mean, the, the modern, you know, artificial intelligence systems can do incredible job of picking out uh, images and the visual scene parsing, right? It's very, very sophisticated. Uh, and I think there's, I think it's part because I think we have a good intuitive understanding as, as humans and sound perhaps similar, like, you know, you have songs, you have words, you can listen to a symphony and, you know, there's somehow it all makes sense, right? Whereas in olfaction, you know, if you go in a busy, uh, I don't know, Middle Eastern or Asian market, and then there's all kinds of amazing smells, right? It just feels like there's a lot of stuff and I think it's not as easy to say, okay, what is it? Am I picking out objects? Am I picking out a specific object smell? Or is it really some more um, synthetic, everything coming, coming together? Uh, there is this sense of what is it intuitively that we're trying to understand in, in, in smell that has probably prevented. And I think that's no longer the case. Now we, we have, I think, slightly better definitions we have a better understanding the actual front end that knows how the nasal epithelium and the olfactory receptors, there is a very good biological hardware that we, uh, we understand at least descriptively. So it gives us a starting point now um, to, to do this. And, and there also appreciation that certain animals are so much more um, smell oriented. And then, you know, you study them and watch them and you know, use it. So I think it's coming up I don't know if it will still change people's minds about how important it is. It's almost like a challenge. Imagine that you have a chemical sensor and a chemical synthesizer as facile as your smartphone. Your smartphone takes in the visual scene effortlessly because it has a camera. You can take it effortlessly. It displays visual objects effortlessly because you have these amazing screens, right? So you input your visual scene and output a visual scene essentially effortlessly for $50, $100, right? What is a similar thing for chemical? Can you take a camera, a smartphone-like object, go into a scene, an olfactory scene, and say, okay, what are all the smells? Record that, and then reproduce that by emitting, right? You, you know, it's, it's infeasible right now, incomprehensible, but maybe a, a 
offer it as a challenge, like imagine you're able to do that, then I think we start then understanding what, what sense of smell is. And I actually think it might help our daily lives. Maybe instead of just having really impoverished perfumes, right? That we you know have in our rooms that maybe have much more rich you know, olfactory scenes. Anyway, but that's an aspiration. It's a long answer to your question, but I feel like um, I, I'm, I'm very passionate about saying like why it's, you know, it should be studied more, more or less for its own sake, not necessarily because we want to cure something. Oh, that's super interesting. And I, I'm wondering with, uh, with, with that, you made the connection with computer vision. And I know a lot of the techniques that we see in machine learning also are based on like on pattern recognition. So a lot of the applications are related to how do you define different community structures? How do you, and, and some of them are applicable to biology as well in looking at uh, protein clustering or things like that. Um, and I'm wondering what kind of computational tools do you use, do you use for the study of uh, smell or what kind of models do you find? Do you find, it, is there any similarity with the techniques that you've seen in computer vision or for the study of vision in general, for example, in, in, in neuroscience, or is it something that you find to be super different? Uh, great question. Uh, you know, like many things in science, um, it's not clear. And I think we're, we're, we're trying to, to interpret it and make sense of it. I think the, uh, these kinds of uh, computer science machine learning techniques as of now are super useful when you have large training sets, like when you can try to make sense of things, right? When you have uh, in a large number of things and in many fields now in the world, unfortunately in social media in particular, there's this huge amount of data about behaviors and patterns. And therefore you can kind of make sense of it, make predictions. So in vision, one of the ways in which you get large data is you could just go and take images of millions of scenes, right? I mean, even a single person can just go and take lots and lots. Collectively on the web, you can mine. So there's a very easy source of the actual data that you're interested in. That's not the case for smells, right? I mean, what, what is it that you need to capture? Do you need to capture the exact molecular composition of every particular smell? Or can you just take lots of different small molecules, which of which there are, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, uh, and then look at their chemical structure and figure things out. And that's what we don't know. And that's what people are pursuing that. For example, you can take, let's say, um, a large number of small molecules, which have smells to, let's say, at least to humans, and try to come up with their physical chemical characteristics. Like, you know, there's a lot of ways of describing those. And then you use these machine learning tools to say, okay, what chemicals are similar to each other in some way? And do they now smell similar to each other for, for animals or for humans, right? The chemical, uh, sort of the similarity in chemical space, does that translate somehow to similarity in how we perceive in, 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 our, in our heads, right? So that's one place where computer science machine learning can, can play a role, but I would argue we're still kind of data impoverished. Just to give you one example, how much actual psychological data do we really have? Right? Not very much. There's historically, you know, you take maybe a couple of hundred odors, smells, and then ask people to kind of give descriptions of these smells. But that's a couple of hundred is, but in today's, you know, machine learning thing is not really very much, right? You need, you need a lot more data. So I think in one sense, the amount of data is, is still low enough that kind of the machine learning or the, the big data tools that are common now don't directly apply. However, I think it helps us think about it and to maybe generate experimental data now moving forward. 
So in that sense, we're on the cusp of it, we're not quite there. But your larger question is, is there some inspiration to be had? Can we, can we think of like, how do you uh, do a fraction? I think that's what many of us are trying to figure out. So I'll give you one example from my own work, if you, if you permit me. The, the idea of visual scene, right? I just told you like you have an image, there's a lot of cluttered stuff typically in a scene, but you very effortlessly pick out a particular face, right? And you know, there are computers uh, vision rules that tell you, okay, pixels that are close to each other belong to one object, you know, you detect lines. So there are ways in which you can pick out uh, one object in the scene. So we, we asked, is there something equivalent in smells? So for example, if I mix 16 different chemicals and ask an animal or a human to um, tell me if the smell of vanilla is present in this mixture, right? If I just give you the vanilla smell, you will, you know, you'll say, okay, this is cleaner, this is vanilla, I can, I can tell you, yeah, I can smell vanilla. But now instead of giving you the pure vanilla, I now mix 15 other chemicals, 15 other odors or smells and tell you, oh, do you pick out, this is, we think this may be equivalent to saying, is there the face of your friend in this cluttered scene of, you know, a hundred people, hundred faces, right? Uh, and I'm not sure, I, again, I wanna be very clear, right? we're making this metaphor, I'm not saying that I'm sure that this metaphor is correct, but this is an example of sort of going across the two senses and trying to find common things. And so we did this experiment, exact experiment in mice in the lab, and it turns out that we can train mice to do this and they can do it extremely well. So you can give up to 16 distracting orders, which is sort of the maximum we've tried. They can still be trained to say, oh, is this particular chemical present in, within that mixture? So can humans do it? Because you know, we have the sense like mice are so much better than us. And there's historically, there are studies, there are a couple of studies which tried something similar in humans and apparently we're not very good at it. So why is that? And you know, that, that's a question, I don't know the answer, but that we can, we can pause to think. Having said that, we also know that there are perfumers, there's you know, sommeliers and like coffee tasters. They taste things and they seem to be able to pick out very fine nuances. They can say, oh, I can smell this particular thing in this particular California Chardonnay. Right? To me, that's equivalent to the, the mouse experiment that I said, like in this mixture of lots of stuff, I can pick out. So maybe it's a matter of training that us, we normal people, we're not really going around being trained to do this very well, but those people who care about it and are trained, uh, maybe humans are actually very good at, at picking things out. Compared to that, at the end of the day, the brain is still a whole bunch of neurons. Yes, there's specialization, so one hopes that there are still common rules for different senses, right? And if one sense is acting in one way, another sense is completely different inside the brain. That's a little bit less satisfying in a way than if there are actual common themes for a compu computation, like finding Waldorf or smells. Yes, in fact, person who wrote the news and views piece for our paper in Nature Neuroscience used that term. In fact, we call this task the olfactory cocktail party task. It's not exactly that, but I mean, you know, this auditory cocktail party um, is the idea that, you know, if you're in a very loud uh, cocktail party, there are lots of voices, but even though there's lots of voices coming at your ears, if you're listening for your friend's voice, you can then pick out just that, uh, that voice that voice stream amidst this uh, massive thing. So it's a well-known kind of auditory cocktail party problem. We sort of made this olfactory analogy of that. 
I think it was super interesting the idea that you mentioned about training as well, being able to train yourself for being to to um to detect different smells. As for other senses, mm-hmm. we don't get that idea that much, at least in adulthood, is at some point you kind of finish with a period of training of being able to recognize objects or to differentiate between them, to name them, uh, to hear your friend in a crowd, as you said. And that stage just finishes much earlier in our lives than, as you mentioned, for smell, which is something that you can continue to train yourself for. I'm wondering, is there any intuition for why do we, can we keep learning that much regarding smell or perhaps there's not that much need to learn that all about it when we're like uh, earlier on in our lives as for the other senses? That's an extremely astute observation. So I think the way I guess uh, many of us neuroscientists think about this is that there is a period early in life when, you know, you can call it learning or you can call it development, that things are kind of maturing, right? And then for vision and audition, that period sort of ends relatively early. Let's say in the first, you know, by adolescence or something, you're you're kind of reaching some some uh, mature stage. And the question you're asking is that it is is smell maybe a little bit different, where you you are con- you know much more plastic for that. You know, I don't know the answer. So I would like to think so, but it's you know given that we haven't really you know done this carefully, I would be a bit cautious. But I can answer it in two different ways. One even though vision and audition, so sight and sound, feel like they've matured and then like all the things that you can do, you already kind of have it uh, at some point. I think there are still some things that you can train to do afterwards. Like for example, I think music, right? The music, yes, there is a period when you kind of need to do it, but, but I think recognizing, you know, chord structures and, you know, stuff that, that that's also sort of, a little bit of a learned thing, right? Because you need to know what are you looking for? And yes, it's harder to do that when you're mature, but I think there is still some ability. Like let's say you didn't really learn to, you know, to, to recognize you know, seventh chords and major chords or whatever, right? You can still be somewhat taught. It's not that you didn't have that ability, but it's more that the patterns are there and you're learning to match these patterns. So one, one of my answers would be that maybe the smell thing is analogous to that. It's not that you have a new sensory ability, it's more downstream in the brain. You're learning to recognize the patterns that arrive at the higher brain areas a little bit more. That, that may be one answer. The other answer could be that, let's say that it, it is indeed more uh, plastic in adult life, the, the olfactory system. There, there, is, there are two possibilities. One, that the sensory neurons in the nose are in fact constantly turning over, meaning that the cells are, the sensory neurons are dying and, and, and new ones are being born. This is probably a consequence of the fact that they are exposed to the outside world, which has a lot of bad things. So it's almost inevitable that the, the sensory stuff at the very end exposed will, will die and maybe the system has taken advantage of it and it keeps replacing it, right? So that's one place where I can sort of imagine by putting new sensors, maybe that there's a way to, to, to help training. I'm not sure, but let, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that the early, at least in animal models in mice, brain areas that, that are involved in the olfactory sensation, let's say the olfactory cortex, they seem to be particularly plastic. Their connections, the synapses, seem to be quite plastic. So there is another substrate very early on. Uh, and I would even hazard that they're probably a lot more plastic than, let's say, the primary visual cortex, the first stage in the cor- cortex where vision is processed. It's 
likely to be less plastic, I, I would hazard, than the, the olfactory cortex. So maybe the brain does have this ability to kind of rewire connections and make associations. So those two answers, one, one which is sort of like, actually we are not looking at it the right way. And the other one is that in fact, yes, it is, we are looking at the right way and things maybe are more plastic uh, in, the, in the sense as well. If that's in it, it would be nice to study that and know for sure, because that might give us a clue, like why is it that one sense continues to be more adaptable through adult life and the others maybe are not. I don't know if this is uh, quite related, but from my own personal experience, I feel like my sense of smell um, adapts to something much more easily than my other senses. So if there's a smell around me, I will get used to it and start ignoring it much, much quicker than I feel like I would a loud, annoying sound or something like that. As you know, all sensory systems uh, actually adapt to some degree. I mean, this is almost inevitable because we, our finite number of neurons just don't have the bandwidth, if you will, to deal with the, the entire universe of, of things that are available. So in some sense, you do have to adapt so that you can be ready for the next new thing that comes along. So all sensory systems do adapt. Right? But you're right. There is this feeling that you, you go and there's something is really bothersome in terms of either it's really too much perfume or too much bad smell, right? And after some time, you really do adapt out. And I think uh, there, that's, it's a little bit hard to scientifically study it, like when you're comparing two different modalities, how exactly do you match that? But I agree with you, the personal experience does seem that way. I don't know why it's more adaptable, but we do know that the olfactory system adapts in many, many stages. For example, at the very front end, the sensory neurons themselves adapt very quickly. So when they, when they smell something, the same smells response now very quickly declines on the order of you know, hundreds of milliseconds to seconds to minutes, like there's the different time scales. Downstream inside the brain, those circuits also adapt, meaning if you give the same stimulus many, many times, those synapses and those recurrent activity also adapts. So there are many different stages where adaptation uh, seem to occur. Maybe cumulatively, they all add up to uh, a lot of, but you know, having said that, visual adaptation is also very, uh, very well studied and very well known. And you, you all know that if you go into a dark room from a bright room, initially it, it's just dark and you'd see nothing. But you know, within minutes, you really start seeing stuff because you know, your, your adaptation in bright light is gone now. So your rods, uh, the photoreceptors are now more sensitive. So I think there is actually a pretty profound adaptation in, in, in vision as well. But your point, I think I have to think about it a little bit, your point that if I'm, let's say I'm sitting in a really uh, a crowded scene with lots of visual stuff, you don't get the feeling like you're adapting it out somehow. You're still very sensitive to all the stuff that's uh, going on. It's a good point. Yeah, one, yeah, I, I don't know. I think you may, you're making me think now and I don't have a good answer. <laughs> do you think that, well, do you know if there's a lot of variation in the sensory systems across um, of both different people, but also people from different places, because now I'm thinking that I can think of places where there there's a lot more smells around, both in the food and in the nature and in the streets. Uh, and I wonder, do you think that there's differences in how discerning people are with their smell? I, you know, you would think so, right? Because it, as you say that, you know, it seems like there's a lot of adaptation in the way you behave uh, is, is sort of, 
influenced by your environment. But I think there's probably also some basic template that all humans just based on our species, right? Our, our, our genetics, sort of our, our common you know, genomics. Um, there's probably some common template. Some things are very likely to be universally perceived as with a certain valence, if you will, whether they're, they're pleasant or unpleasant. I think there's probably some, some commonality and there's going to be some, some adaptation. And again, is the, is the differences in the way we perceive smells, is that a cultural thing, environmental thing? Or is it really somehow then that's baked into your genetics because you know people have lived in a specific area for a long time? And I kind of doubt that part. I don't. I don't know. But you know, I think it's more that just your it's a surrounding and the environment is influencing you. And you could go into a different environment after some time. You can also kind of become part of that culture, that uh, th that that population. And then my personal example would be like when I came to the US uh, as, a, as a grad student, you know, a long years ago, I really did had no experience with uh, che different cheeses because at the time in India, there were really not much cheeses. This is one bland kind of cottage cheese, but I don't think I found the different cheeses very pleasant to, to, to eat, but you know, I kind of hate and you know, you, you kind of get into the system, but now I actually, I genuinely enjoy many of the stinky cheeses, right? I mean, they, so I think, is it that my front end is the same and it's really the inside of my brain I've learned to now interpret these signals in a different way or is the front end also changing? I think it's probably the former, that I think it's more that the input is still more or less the same, but you you are adding more, the more complexity to how you interpret and how, how you kind of make sense of it. Yeah, it's a, I mean, these are things that the only person who, the couple of people who have done um, interesting studies on this is one, uh, there's an Israeli scientist, Noam Sobel, you know, he does a lot of uh, very clever and interesting human research. He's looked at what is a, what is common and what's not common in the way we perceive smells. I guess related to that, I'm also wondering how, how difficult it is to study people's perceptions of, of, of smell? Is it, is it often that their their uh, let's say cognitive signal or their brain signals that you would see in people or animals who perceive smell is it similar to the perception that they would have or is there a difference between these that we see to be more than in other senses? It's a good question. I think to answer your first kind of what you started on asking, I think one of the big problems. I think in studying sense of smell is that we don't have good descriptors, right? If I ask you to, uh, to look at a visual scene, you can say things like it's bright, it's dark, it's yellowish, it's greenish, it's, uh, um, you know, there are edges there. Those things seem to be somehow more objective. You know, we can argue philosophically like what is objective, but you know, they, does, they do have this sense of being objective. Whereas in smell, if I ask you, what does it smell like? Typically what we do is that we say it smells like a characteristic of an actual object, we say smoky, sulfury, fruity, flowery, right? But wait, th those are things that you're taking the attributes of an object and then giving that as, a, as an adjective essentially. And that, so I think that is a fundamental problem. It's in fact, that still is there. When you, when you go to you know, any description of perfumes or whatever, it's always something like that. Oh, citrusy, it has a 
that thing. It has a musky odor. It has so that is the first I think problem essentially. So we don't have some objective metric that we can check off and say like how much of greenishness is there, how much of you know something else. Uh, and does it look edgy or does it look more blurry? Right? Those those things in it. So that's a first. How do you even get the output of that of the thing? And that's for humans. Can you imagine for mice? Like, what do, what do we even ask mice to tell us about exactly? So I think it's it's really not. So what we resort to usually is comparisons. We can say like, are these two things similar to each other? Like, are you matching it or unmatching it? Can you tell this apart from something else? So that's the, the, that's kind of the limitation we have right now. If I understood you correctly, your second part is, can you sort of make sense of the neural signals and match it to the actual perception that you're having, right? And as, in, as good caring materialist neuroscientists, we of course think that everything in our thoughts, our perceptions or memory is all the neural activity and it's a matter, matter of the pattern of neural activity. So I think that's almost like a underlying hypothesis. We always go with that, right? And I think it is hard, I think, for neural signals in the olfactory system for humans, it's particularly hard because the regions of the brain that are involved in these are quite small and they're very ventral. So if you do something like functional magnetic resonance imaging, the common way of looking at neural signals in, in, in normal brains, unless you can do invasive electrodes, which you, know, you don't do in normal people, the resolution of that method is very poor compared to the actual size of these regions. So you really can't, it's very hard to detect patterns. People try, but it's very hard. This problem is overlaid on the fact that the very brain organization of the olfactory system in some ways seems to be quite different from the visual system or the um, auditory system because there seems to be almost no neighborhood relationships in the brain. So in the visual system, the parts of the brain that look at a particular visual field are laid out next to the part that's looking at a neighboring visual field, meaning that the it's almost like a camera. It's a distorted camera, but the, the, the front end of the camera is laid out in the, in, in the cortex of in the visual cortex with some very beautiful neighborhood uh, relationship. Whereas in the olfactory system, we don't know what neighborhood. It's not like two smells that are supposed to be very similar are laid out next to each other in the... So the pattern there is a very distributed and scattered mosaic pattern. So even if you are able to look at higher resolution neural activity, which we can do in mice, in, in experimental animals, it still seems to be hard to kind of make sense of it because it's almost like you have to look at the entire pattern, all the different pixels, and then and, and, and try to match it up. So I think we are very excited. Many of us are actually looking into this. How do you go from the pattern of activity to, to, to perception? But that's really the neural patterns are very well studied and studyable in animal models. But the psychological perceptual things are not as well studyable and then you, you have to go to humans. So there's a mismatch. So we would like to have an organism, an animal model where you can get very beautiful neural activity pattern measurement, but also have very nice psychophysical, psychological um, studies. And I think that's, that's, it's a challenge right now. This is 2020. And the thing that's in all of our minds is the coronavirus. And that's something that seems to be very related to smell, right? It seems like loss of smell is one of the was one of the hallmark symptoms of the disease and one of the most reliable ones. Uh, is that something that you've thought of? Something that you have any 
inside their answers to? Yeah, I, I've thought of it, but we haven't done anything. But actually, there is um, some decent amount of information that's come out, in fact, uh, in part due to our Harvard colleague, Bob Data in the medical school. So there is actually very good evidence now, uh, collected by actually several groups collaborating with each other, that the cells that seem to be damaged by the virus are not probably the actual sensory neurons. Because the first thing is, okay, the sensory neurons that are sensing the smells and the chemicals, they're right there in the nose, in the nasal epithelium, they're gonna be killed and you, you, that's how you lose, right? That doesn't seem to be the case. There is a class of supporting cells right next to them. I don't remember exactly, they're called cystentacular cells or something like that. But these are non-neuronal supporting cells. They have the receptor for this virus, this ACE2 receptor. They express that, so they are the most likely candidate for what's affected. So when they are killed, maybe that sort of affects the, maybe the morphology or like the way these sensory neurons are there. And that seems to actually uh, cause this smell. The one, you know, that's bad news. I mean, sense of smell, um, you know, people, you know, you now see all these beautiful essays written by writers, right? I mean, scientists were unfortunately traditionally not very good, you know, evocative writers, but there are some writers who had COVID and then they write beautifully, like how horrible it is for them to lose a sense of smell because sense of smell is also literally the sense of taste because most of what we think of taste and flavor comes from the nose because when you chew your food, those molecules actually travel retronasally in the back of your roof of your mouth to the nose. And a lot of this richness of the flavor is really smell, right? Coming from inside your mouth, essentially. So if you lose sense of smell, you also lose actually quite a lot of the flavor. So food now becomes pretty boring, really boring. And so there are people who have written like how much they enjoy it in a certain kind of steak or a certain, you know, uh, uh, in a fancy Asian food. And now, you know, none of that is enjoyable. So that, that's an aside. So it does matter in terms of life's, life, um, daily life, if you will. But one mo in a modestly good thing is that because it's not the sensory neurons themselves that are, that are gone, the sense of smell does seem to come back for many people and not, not for everybody. So I think meaning that when these support cells maybe grow back, they're able to kind of get things back uh, in, in reasonable shape that, that you do get the sense of smell. Because if you destroy all the sensory neurons, new sensory neurons are born, as I said, like after some time when you get over the infection, th there will be new sensory neurons that are produced. But if you destroy a huge number of these, those sensory neurons don't find the right place to go into the brain very well. So the, the mapping of the front end to inside of the brain will be disrupted, even though the neurons themselves are fine. So you don't want a large number of your sensory neurons to die at once, because even when they regrow, they don't go to the right place very easily. So I think one of the things is that, again, going back to where I started, the loss of sense of smell does not affect your mortality, right? Meaning that the COVID is not affecting people and killing them because of the loss of smell, right? So again, even though it's now in the news and people think about it, but the actual cure when we talk about is not going to be focused on the sense of smell. It's really a symptom, right? It's a good indicator and how do you do the test? So I think that this is funny mismatch of why it's interesting, but also it's not necessarily life-threatening for you uh, do. But uh, having said that, the one advance now clinically that's happening is that people are thinking hard about coming up with very good uh, smell and taste tests. 
Like when you go to a doctor, we all know that you can have very beautiful vision tests. You read these little letters or symbols. Audition is the same thing. They give you clicks and they give you sounds. What is the scent? How do you test the sense of smell? Not as easy, right? I mean, you know, give a smelling stick. What are you supposed to say? So I think now that's being rethought. I think um, there's a lot of effort to come up with easy and reproducible clinical smell tests, which I think would be very cool to do, even to do like psychophysical experiments later on, right? Yeah, that's super interesting. I'm wondering, is it, do you, do you see as a, as a more prevalent thing, the symptom of not having smell or diseases of the smell that you mentioned earlier on? Is that some, it, I feel like it's something that we rarely hear about or we perhaps don't study that much as in, in, in the general population. So when um, COVID-19 came, it was a very much shock for everyone to be like, oh, what do you mean? I'm losing the sense of smell. Like, And for some people, it even came, at, it even took a while to realize they lost the sense of smell. They didn't realize it's on, on, on the first day because it's not something that's on our mind that it's that you can lose. That's a very good question. So, so the answer is, I wish I knew this off the top of my head, but the number of people who have diminished or completely lost sense of smell, the complete loss is called anosmia. I mean, you don't smell, so anosmia. It's not that low. It's, you know, there, it's, it's pretty significant. So I think there's quite a, a large number of people who have diminished, uh, as you say, in part because somehow we don't pay attention to smell as as something in, in, in daily life. The only time we do pay attention, actually the two times we pay attention is when we eat because we're forced to, because flavor is, I think food is very important for us, right? And uh, uh, at least lifestyle wise. So the, 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 then we, we realize that. The other one is of course, when you have bad smells, right? I mean, when you smell somebody you know, has body odor or bad smell, that's, that's a more social thing, right? But viral media, uh, how could I call it? Um, other like flus and other uh, cold viruses, many of those also lead to a loss of sense of smell. But why is it that those never got attention? People didn't pay attention? It's a very interesting question. I think it truly is a sociological thing. This goes to show that first of all, it takes a while for us to recognize that we've lost this, this sense of smell or diminished sense of smell. And even when we do, somehow maybe we don't care about it as much. So I think this is an interesting thing, but COVID maybe is bringing a little bit more awareness that actually it matters more. Yes, it's not life-threatening. Let's, you know, let's, let's be clear. Certainly losing sense of smell is, in, in modern society is not life-threatening. However, it is, um, it is very clear that it, um, quality of life is severely affected. There are many association studies which show that people with loss of smell have higher incidence of depression, yeah, sort of mood disorders, that that's, there's, I think, very strong correlational evidence for that. There's also evidence that some neurodegenerative diseases, particularly Alzheimer's, uh, very early on before the onset, there is diminished sense, uh, lo- diminished, um, yeah, sense of smell. Loss of, I wouldn't say loss of smell, but diminished anyway. So again, it's funny, right? These are always markers, like the loss of smell, altered smell seems to be an index of many different things. So at the very least, there could be a diagnostic thing. So we can maybe dissociate that like, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's important because you do lose it in many conditions, even though, you know, you may not die from losing your sense of smell. Well, that was great. I think we can uh, wrap up. Um, I do hope in the future we can uh, send smells over the internet. That seems like a fun way to share 
<laughs> you're like distressing <laughs> with your family. Yeah. That would be good. Also, I mean, there's a practical thing too, right? I mean, that's, uh, I don't know, there's like a social thing again. The practical thing is that there are cases where you want to go and detect if a particular chemical, a toxic chemical, or maybe, a, heaven forbid, an explosive or something like that. Then imagine sending um, kind of a robotic device that just you know, walks over there, or, or, you know, wheels over there and has a chemical sensor that can detect, you know, what is there. I think that's, there, there are practical reasons to think about that as well. But as a neuroscientist, I think I'm really fascinated. Like why, why is it, it's mysterious and why do we, I feel like we should care more about this. And why don't we care more about this? Yeah, well, maybe now because of COVID, we are gonna start caring a lot more about it. Well, great. Yeah, thank you both so much uh, for being uh, with us in Science by the Pint and uh, sharing your knowledge and questions. No, thank you. That was really wonderful. Well, thank you both for giving me a chance. It was very enjoyable talking to you. And thank you, Science by the Pine listeners, for being with us in this episode with Anna Stoika and Venki Murthy. See you next time.